China and Seth Kent are the wife and husband team who lead the band All Right, All Right out of Denver, Colorado. Their marriage has produced a unique musical alchemy. China plays keyboards, Seth plays guitar, and they are complemented by lush instrumental arrangements created by China. Their vocal harmonies combine Seth's folky warmth and China's lush alto to convey a range of emotions and feelings. Their first album, Nearby, generated strong critical buzz, and their live performances garnered a loyal following. They share songwriting duties and write songs both individually and collaboratively. On their new album, Crucible, they write very personal songs inspired by autobiographical episodes, and they are here to share the backstory of some of these songs from the new album. Welcome to Backstory Song, and I'm your host, Doug Burke. And today we have the husband and wife duo of China and Seth Kent from Denver, Colorado, with the band All Right, All Right. The mission of Backstory Song is to help songwriters get found, discovered, and listened to and liked. And I really, really hope you find and like All Right, All Right. Okay, Seth and China. Matthew McConaughey made famous the expression, all right, all right, all right, but you guys shortened it. Where does the name come from? Yeah, we put a little apostrophe there. All right, all right. <laughs> it's, it's not a direct relationship, but we have taken advantage of the association from time to time. It's true. It's true. So where does the name come from? Like many things in our lives, it was kind of an accident. Uh, we, yeah, we, sometimes we sort of back into these things. Yeah, so. uh, we had our first gig scheduled, you know, booked back in 2007, in April of 2007. And we booked the gig before we had a name for a band. And, I, and it was just us. So we were debating, should we just call ourselves the Kents or... And, and then we were like, oh, shoot, there's this other band, uh, you know, what I, you know, at I the don't time, know. there was a big sort of new wave band in England called, called Kent, Kent or something like that. Yeah, which makes sense. So so the the venue kept pestering Seth about like, what are we going to call you? What are we going to call you? And so Seth, you know, we were like in bed one night and Seth was like, China, we've got to come up with a name for our band. And I was like, all right, all right. And there we go. A very different one than Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't the laid back, like, all right, all right, all right. It was like, all right, all right. People will sort of clearly say it as though Matthew McConaughey were saying, and I'll correct them and say, no, no, no. You skipped the first all right. It's just the second two. It's the second two. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like enough already. Exactly, exactly. So you guys have been together for a long time, right? But not just as a couple, but as a performing Duo. Tell me about like your history to get here, how, like the, the albums you have out and how long it's been and what we're going to talk about today. The first music we released together was actually before that gig. In 2006. In 2006 for Christmas. We were pretty broke. We had just had a baby, our first baby. Just had a baby. And so we decided that our present to all of our family would be, we would make a Christmas CD and send it to all of them. So we literally like recorded all these mostly, you know, Christmas standards and then one song that we had written. It's sort of a Christmassy song and we recorded it, 
you know, just with an old inbox. I literally had our son, who is one month old, laying on my lap when I was playing the piano for it. <laughs> and I mean, and we he, like, we rented the CDs with a CD burner attached to the computer. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like this is like such a like, home DIY job. I was cutting like... <laughs> card stock that we printed to make <laughs> and like the CD gluing cover. it together like, i mean we were like broke and actually in that first recording our son's little baby cries in the end of it it's actually super sweet we so, didn't really have the name of our band yet but we knew that we wanted to make music together we had been making music with many other people for years before that when we met china was making a solo album I would not say other than some background vocals that i was particularly involved in it other than moral support he drove me on the back of his motorcycle to my recording sessions. It was very sexy. That sounds very romantic. It was. It was pretty great. And now she gets on the back of a motorcycle and goes, I'm terrible. <laughs> That's what parenting will do to you. I know. What the heck, guys? I mean, this is not okay. I used to love being on the back of a motorcycle. But all of that to say, we've been doing music together off and on, basically since we met. Seth helped me carry my big ass heavy piano from my station wagon to the stage. For me, I, I had just gotten out of a really bad relationship, so I was not looking at all. But apparently it was a different story for Seth. I was like, OK, this is a good thing right here. And uh, <laughs> I just stuck around till she was convinced. You know, the music thing and the relationship progressed alongside each other with us always favoring, making sure we were maintaining a good relationship rather than trying to shoehorn musical mm. collaboration into it. Yeah, I, I would say that this is all right, all right, 3.0. I think we've essentially like tried being a band three separate times. And one time, I think it was back in like 2010, I remember we were driving home from Wyoming. And, you know, like when you're driving, you can like, because you're not looking at each other and there's like this active other thing that is driving that is happening at the same time. So it's like, you can say these profound truths to each other, like so much easier than if you were like at dinner looking at each other, you know? And I don't remember who said it first, but one of us said, you know, I don't really like being in a band with you. And then the other one was like, oh my God, me neither. And it was like this huge relief. So we were like, okay, screw the band. Let's just shut that down and just be parents and married lovers. Let's just like give that whole thing up for a little while. Actually, at the time, I thought we were giving it up forever. And we really didn't do much with music for four or five years. I oh, was yeah. working a full time just office job. It was it was so nice. And after what we had come out of, which actually which we'll come to, we'll come songs, to that later. So we'll get back to that. <laughs> after coming out of that, we really needed a solid break. And I needed for my own health for about two or three years, I would say it was really good for me to just go to an office and work and for China to be with the kids and for me to hug the kids every day when I got home and to be a part of that whole process. And to, as they started with school to help with homework and all that kind of thing. And, you know, baseball practice, all the normal family stuff. Yeah. We, we like lived that life for about four years. So that was like, after all, right, all right, 2.0 died, you know. And then I kind of had like a, it wasn't like a, I mean, I'm always having many existential crises. crises. That one was more like, oh my God, I'm going to turn 40. What the hell am I doing with my life? And we had some health concerns come up. Yeah. And I was at the dentist and 
my dentist was like, huh, you've got this weird lump in your throat. I want you to go get this checked out. And I did. And through a series of events that I won't bore you with, essentially the place that I went to get it checked out, he was like, oh yeah, that's precancerous. We're going to burn that off and get it biopsied. And he was trying to be like helpful, but you know, in my conversation with this doctor, he was like, yeah, this is the cancer you don't want. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think there's anyone on the planet who wants to hear we think this is throat cancer. Yeah. So, so we definitely had a couple of weeks where it was like, oh, man, this is going to get very real. Yeah. You know, this is going to get very intense. And I had this like, OK, you know, going to the darkest timeline, say I have like throat cancer. What am I going to be so disappointed and sad like for the rest of my life that I didn't do? So I just kind of had that moment with myself and I realized interestingly, at the same time, I did a a life coaching sort of session. And I realized like, this is my one thing. I mean, some people have a lot of things they're really good at. Turns out I'm really only good at like a couple of things and playing the piano and writing songs and like communicating deep emotion through music is the thing that I do best. So when did you start? When was the first time you wrote a song and why did you start writing a song? <laughs> well, I wrote a song when I was like seven years old. I can sing it for you now. I just remembered the chorus. It was fly away in an ocean of love and forgiveness. I was very... That's very, um, I was very CCM of you. I, know, I, was, I was raised in a very fundamentalist Christian home. Um, and anyway, I remember hiding those lyrics, that song in my underwear drawer for like 10 years. Didn't you find them recently? <laughs> no, we never found those. It was a poem that I wrote that we found. But. Oh, okay. I think my first song was probably like 12 or 13, probably about the same time I started learning to play guitar. I also wrote uh, piano compositions just, you know, without lyrics or words or anything. I entered some contests with them and I won one once actually when I was like in seventh or eighth grade. But I was, you know, I was very much on this classical piano trajectory singing and playing at the same time wasn't really on my list of things I wanted to do or like thought I could do until I was in my 20s. Don't worry, 
got that existential fear, but love is why you're here. Why don't we start with don't worry? I was in bed. It was late at night. Everyone was asleep. Everyone was abed. <laughs> there was this, just this like snippet of a song going through my head. And I've now been working with this gift, this calling, this whatever you, you know, this, this songwriting thing long enough to know that the lie that you're going to remember it in the morning is just that it is a lie. You will not remember it in the morning. If you have it in your head, you go to your instrument and you freaking flesh it out in like right then and there because, and I always take my phone and I do a voice memo. So I practiced that discipline. I got myself out of bed and I went downstairs and it was dark. And I had the, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a dream, you came to me. I had that right there all in one chunk. It just was like right there. And then as I kept singing it, it was, it was interesting. I was channeling something. I, I was channeling someone else's or also my own, like, deep desire to have this person that almost like a parent or like, like a parent with no issues, (laughs) you know, like, like someone to come and just tell me that I'm doing okay, that like, things are going to be okay. Or, you know, like, I I don't know, I kind of just was channeling that need and that desire. And I kept singing that. And I was kind of having a moment with myself emotionally, you know, it was really, really hard for me to like, get through that whole concept, which was kind of, it was new, it was different. I'd never had an experience quite like that, writing a song, but I didn't have any of the verses yet. And it was very different. It had much more of like a pop, like a snappy kind of vibe to it rather than the melancholy thing that we've come up with now. So I got the course out, went to bed, came back to it. I remember when like a week, a day, you know, later. Originally, it was like the snappy, like, Monday, woke up late again. And it was going to be like this more of like a beat pop song kind of thing. And when we took it into the studio with Ben, our producer, Ben Wysocki, who is just amazing, we tried that version of it and it just never felt right. It just never took, like, you're trying to make something stick and it just would never stick, you know? So we like kind of left it on the shelf for a while. We did all these other songs and finally we came back to Don't Worry. And he's like, okay, why don't you just sit at the piano? I really think we need to put this in a whole different setting. I'm not quite sure what it is. Let's just play around. Let's just like really rethink this whole thing. Well, I really love coming up with a pretty piano part. You know, I'm a big time Corey Amos fan. I love Sufjan's piano stuff. So I just kind of like, dorked around on the piano, you know, kind of just, you know, and I landed on that. It's not an Alberti bass. It's more, uh, it's, it's a, well, my left hand is rotating in a fifth and, you know, I'm playing a G minor chord spread between two hands, you know, and Ben was like that, what's that? And I just kind of applied that background, that accompaniment to like the whole song. And then what do we do? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we we basically were like, okay, this, this song doesn't need to be traditional. Let's just. Yeah, we cut like a verse and a half out of it. Yep. And, 
and we 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 like decided to not do the verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus like traditional way that you do a song and we kind of decided to make it a bit more of a I mean it's not really an art piece but it is a bit of a an anomaly you know a little bit of an artistic like we short song to use the crucible analogy we refined it down to yeah. its absolute core of the song rather yeah. than all the fluff around it yeah that's interesting there's a lot of space in the song which i love i really like this sort of chunky sounds like a deck of cards being shuffled that comes in in the first verse what what is that that is actually something we came up with Really early, even in the pre-pro section, I think, and then we ended up keeping it around. We were messing around with snare sounds and we started getting a chain and dropping the chain onto the snare. Wait, we did that in, don't worry. Yeah. We did? Mm -hmm. I don't remember that. Um, Go listen to it again, I know, it's really cool. (laughs) I mean, we spent like a year working on this thing. So a lot of that stuff, you're like, wait, what sound was that in? You're like... Well, we also uh, sent... So we have a really great friend that we've been working with for years and years our british friend chris mears and he's now in lexington kentucky and we were like you know i feel like we need just a little bit of like mears like shimmer and shine so he took this song and he did remember he had like an auto harp thing that he did with this song he like yeah he did a weird percussive he had like this thing. broken auto harp that he was doing some percussive stuff yeah on it too yeah so there's like the weird broken auto harp sound on there and then Ben did this um, thumping, like, bump, bump, bump. He did a thumping. Was that on the, um, was it on a guitar or was it on a I on actually don't remember. Drum? He was, anyway, he, he like. Thumping on something. Yeah. I really like this line, dust in the light like a whispered prayer. Arms full of laundry on the second floor. Crying in the bathroom with a locked door. Dust in the light like a whispered you know, this whole song about existential fear, which has always been around, but in this COVID era seems heightened. Yeah, yeah, totally. When China wrote it and when we started working on it, it meant something to us for sure. Even after finishing recording it and through this whole release process, a lot of things have happened that have made that song mean a lot more to us personally, much less otherwise. Yeah, it's so weird how we wrote this. We, we like made this album and we literally finished it on March 13th, maybe. Like literally right before the world shut down, we turned it into our mixing engineer, which was just so weird. And then so much of it is zeitgeist, like super current, you know? And, you know, we had our own sort of falling off the cliff existential crisis about 10 years ago when Seth had been working for a big, huge, big label band and got fired. And like, it felt like the end of the world to us. And, you know, I think that this, that's what's so interesting. It's like, the pandemic is the end of all of our world as we know it or knew it, you know, and and like different people are experiencing that in all sorts of different ways. And we're all navigating that. But like the end of the world is a very personal thing, isn't it? (laughs) It's a universal thing. And individually, it's a personal thing for everyone. Like so much in life, you know, songs are, are universal. And yet everybody has their personal relationship with a song. I always ask my 
interviewees, you know, how do you know when a song is finished? And clearly on this song, it started off in one place and ended up in another. And I guess every song has its own pathway towards getting to that moment where you as a songwriter say, okay, this is finished. In fact, you know, once you start performing them, they can evolve even from there. But at some point you say it's finished and we're recording it this way. And so how did you decide this was finished? <laughs> you know, I think a deadline. Yeah, right. Hey, a deadline. <laughs> That's always a really good uh, way to have to finish something. I think the addition of Ben, like the three of us together was such a good working situation. Ben is the drummer for the Fray. You know, the Fray have done, you know, obviously, you know, they've been in lots of really fancy studios and worked with really fancy producers and stuff. And so, and Ben really, he like paid attention. I mean, he, he spent his whole, like the, the end of his teens and all of his twenties, you know, like in that world. And I think Ben's like intuition and his kind of magic music smarts are what have helped us know when things are right, wrong, and finished. I don't think that Seth and I in our own, just us together in a studio would have been able to, and that's really hard to cut off when it's your song. Yeah, it is know? hard. I also think like just the way that we were recording this, we were sitting down with sort of a body of work at the start and trying to make a cohesive, almost a narrative. Part of helping you know when the song's ready is when it fits in that narrative. I don't think that was a conscious decision with most of the songs. It was with a few, but there was sort of this like acknowledgement that we were going for an arc when the song sat in that arc. We knew we were at least close. Hmm. Thought we were young And we were dead broke Sold my band saw to buy groceries We didn't tell our folks We felt alone When I got fired Seemed like no one was still here for us Anchorless and tired Thinking back, I guess I was full of shame Memories we hold Are a chalk outline of pain There was an anger in me Like smoke from a burning tree Stinging in my eyes and then blew away So you alluded to the next song we wanted to talk about, Some Dreams, which, Seth, you wrote, and this was a very autobiographical song, correct? It is completely autobiographical, with the borrowing of introducing my wife's part of the story from my perspective. Actually, this gets back to Ben as the producer as well. China was talking about 10 years ago and our world kind of ending, and that's that's the moment that the song sort of addresses, is when... I had been working with 
the fray, managing their studio, second engineering, and then I was doing some backline tech on the road with them. He was gone basically the whole first year of our daughter's life. Like he was on the road with them. She was seven weeks old when I left to go on the road. She was Um, 11 days old when you left. 11 days. She was 11 days old. That's even worse. Now I feel even worse. (laughs) No, no, you're fine. We we have have moved beyond this. (laughs) Yes, we we have moved beyond this. (laughs) Who's counting no how many counting, days? Eleven days, seven weeks, whatever. <laughs> whatever. whatever. <laughs> yeah. was, I mean, it was a really in hindsight, it was a really difficult time for me personally in my life and for China. I was on the road. I was basically not available. I would wake up and when you're backline tech with a big tour like that. There's not a lot of downtime. It's kind of ridiculous what you guys do. It's very physically demanding work. It's time consuming, physically demanding. You're not sleeping well because you're on a bus. I was probably drinking too much. Yeah. I was missing my family because, again, hindsight, I'm a family guy. I'm not made to go on the road. That's not like part of my, not on the road like that anyway. So it was a really difficult time in my life, but we had this notion that this mm. was my dream. Yeah. Like it, Seth had said to me, like when we were dating, he was like, I, you know, I'd be like, well, what's your dream job? And he'd be like, oh my gosh, to be a guitar tech for a major label band or, you know, what, you know, like, since you're like 15, that's yeah. what you've always wanted to do. That's right? what I always, I'll get into a little bit of the self narrative of it in that, like, now that I'm doing this, now that we have our own band and I'm writing songs for me and I, when I load in and load out, it's for me, it's different. And I think I was afraid at the time of admitting that I wanted this and of mm. admitting that if I was going to do all this work, I should do it for me. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I allude to that in the song where I like in that first pre-chorus where I say I was full of shame. Seem like no one was still here for us, anchorless and tired. Thinking back, I guess I was full of shame. Memories we hold are a chalk outline of pain. I was really embarrassed about my own aspirations and my own dreams, and that I left when we had this baby at home. And then China broke her foot. <laughs> I broke my foot on July 2nd. I was wondering what that was a reference to. Broken bone and baby. Oh, Doug. Broke her foot. I fell down the stairs. So I was, it was like literally like the first day that Seth had been gone. And it was like the. F- or day 12. No, we were, we were in Indianapolis. So no, 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 like- no, no, no. Wait, listen, no, let me finish my thought. Oh, okay. It was the first day since he had been gone that I felt like I had my shit together. Like I was like. And I made dinner by 6.30. Oh, my God. You know, like, I felt like I had my shit together. And the kids were down in the basement. Like, Fender was two and a half. And I left the baby with with the two and a half year old. (laughs) She clearly had her shit together. (laughs) But they were watching a TV. She couldn't roll over yet. So she was, like, laying on the couch. And I was, like, you know, going up and down between the kitchen and and watching them. You know, like, trying to, like, figure it out. You know, whatever. da da And as I was going down the stairs to like call them up for dinner, I fell and I broke my foot. 
And when we say broke foot, it's not like she broke her toe and had to hobble around. No, it was it was we, I needed a week, surgery. <laughs> I think a week and a half later, we had a week off and I came home and my whole job while I was home was to get her through the surgery process. So, <laughs> ridiculous. And that's yeah. I mean, really, like that should have been a sign. Like that should have been like, okay, this isn't working. But we were both so committed to like this idea of a dream of like, of like, oh, this is, this is going to be the gateway to your career kind of thing. You know, like, and as I'm sort of intimating, like it kind of was a gateway to that career if I wanted it to be, except as it turns out, that's not the career I wanted. Hmm. But it took like going, but I didn't have the courage at the time to get myself out of that situation. I didn't have the courage to say to these guys who are my friends, listen, this isn't working. I think it's probably not working for you guys. And I know it's not working for me. Mm. So I love you guys. Let's still be friends. And you can find someone who's going to be better at this job than me. So I got pushed off a cliff. (laughs) <laughs> by getting fired from that job. <laughs> I feel and like people really, can relate to this. Yeah. I feel like this is not yeah, this is, just you. Yeah, I mean, you no, know. no. And I think like, I mean, we all got pushed off a cliff this year. So, yeah. and when I say we all, I mean, everybody on the planet. Reality came in really, really quick. And that happened for us too in that instance. And I think like, I was really hurt and really upset and kind of also really, really, really exhausted. The only difference in the narrative of the song versus the narrative of how it actually happened was the third verse happened before the second verse. We left town for like six weeks. That's not true. I broke my foot before. No, you, you No. no, it's all correct. No. Yes. 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 Broken bone of babies in verse two. Yes. Broken bone. Yeah, that's true. So the broken bone of baby anyway, (laughs) but like as far as the verse, like we left town before I got the job that I could hate. Oh, right. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, right. We just so, like, I, he I got, got fired, fired and we left. He got fired. We, it, well, we like, we were going to sell our house. We were going to move the heck out of Denver. Seth said, Denver is a hornet's nest. I got to get the F out of here. So we borrowed the same friend that actually renovated our basement. We borrowed his 1952 camper. It was camper. called the Aljo. It was so awesome. I love One that of those thing. like canned ham looking things. Yeah. And we like pulled it behind our van and we went on a 10 week road trip with a one year old and a three year old. Can I just say it was just so great. We, we went to a wedding in Connecticut and then we just headed down the East Coast, Eastern Seaboard. We spent a week in the Outer Banks. We kind of circled back and it was the first time that we as a foursome had been together like that ever. Really ever. Especially for any length of time. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. I still miss that. That changed everything for both of us, yeah. I think. Yeah. Where by the end of that trip, I don't think we were ready at that point to say, oh, this was a good thing because it was still very painful. But we certainly recognized that we had been barking up the wrong tree. And that's why I needed that break where I was working just a job for years because I needed to break away from an expectation I had built for myself of supporting some other thing, some other dream, some other goal that wasn't within myself. And I really did get that separation and was able to like find myself and find ourselves. I think we found ourselves as a family. Mm -hmm. 
That's a wonderful story arc. I really like how you had this idea that you wanted to be this thing, this job. And, you know, a lot of us, we start out in life and think, oh, I'm going to be a fireman or doctor or lawyer or whatever. Right, you know? right. And then you have three different ways of killing that lie, as you call it. The writing on the wall was a lie. The wild beast will speak and killed the lie. And it's walking on the coals that kills the lie. So there are three different ways that the lie got killed in this song. Yeah, and I, I think that's how life works too. I think we get, we keep getting hit till we get it. You know? <laughs> if you don't learn to duck the punch, it's going to get you again. The thing I like about this storyline that I find so humorous is, you know, you meet your wife by moving her Steinway piano or whatever it was <laughs> at, at, a, at a gig and your pickup line when she says, what do you want to be when you grow up is I want to be a roadie. <laughs> that's so funny. I've never put that together. That's so good. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and she was like, I need one of those. <laughs> I have this friggin' Roland RD 600. Oh, that's hilarious. We got rid of that keyboard because it was too heavy. And China's like, oh, you're the man, for, like me. man for me. <laughs> this is my dream come true. Now we have all sorts of heavy pianos. Oh, God. I've moved so many pianos in my life. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Ronnie Jones worked the checkout at the grocery store. Yesterday he took his paycheck and walked out the door. He said, honey, I don't know where I'm going. Oh, and I don't know where I've been. Funny, it don't matter no more, cause child, we're getting into the van. Your mama left this morning and she's not coming back. I'm sick of feeling sorry for myself. So pack up your knockoff American girl and get your stuff off the shelf. Running down the highway at 65, laying all my chips on the line tonight. Feeling unlucky after 13 years of letting her win every fight. Maybe starting over. Let's talk about Over the Edge. Okay. Oh, man. I love that song so much. I, you know, part of the... Okay, so that song started as a little baby as a sound check in Cincinnati. And I'll never forget it because we were playing this really beautiful, old, sort of broken down... I don't know. It was an old church that our friends set us up with this gig there. And the sound guy was understandably sort of trying to dial in the sound and it was taking him longer than normal he was like turning knobs and buttons and everything and and he was like just keep playing just keep playing and Seth just started playing this riff and it wasn't like gibberish because I definitely <laughs> I think I first started singing about Sheila but I just started randomly singing about this woman Sheila it all just started coming out almost in like a gibberishy way uh Sheila la, 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 at the grocery store yesterday she took her paycheck and walked out the door. La, 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 
da, da, and I was just kind of la la lying, you know. One of us at that time was like, "Ooh, this is good. Let's just turn on our voice memo again." Thank God the iPhone has that app. That's like the best thing for musicians. Otherwise, man. we'd just be carrying around little like dictaphone. I used to. Things, I used yeah. to carry around a little tape tape recorder. You know. Dare you just be singing la 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 songs? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. So then I think it just sat there in our voice memos for like a year and a half. Yeah, must have. And then I think we just sort of listened to it and we're like, oh, this is good. Oh, this we is could good. do something with it. And I think we sent it to Ben and he was like, this is really good. Let's work on this. You know, why don't you write this? Yeah, when we were getting ready to make the album, he basically just said... We sent him all of our voice memos. He said, send me everything you've got. And we were like, okay, well, some of it's not great. And funny enough, some of those things, he's like, no, 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 keep going with this one. We're like, it's not that good. He's like, it's going to be awesome. So we sent everything to Ben and and this was one of the things that he was like, yeah, this is really good. Let's keep going with this. I feel like it was the first one we worked on with him. It might have been. We've been playing it live for a while too. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. We had been playing it live. So we we did a whole like almost a whole year of pre-production with Ben. He would come over like once or twice a week for a couple hours. It was so nice. It, It just felt so unhurried and unrushed. And we worked on sort of honing the body of work, like, okay, what are the songs that are going to be included in this? And let's now flesh out those songs and let's finish writing those songs. And we kind of did a lot of that together. And the three of us in the studio with this song is one of my favorite memories. Yeah. It was so fun. We did end up moving the story around a little bit, just kind of like developing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we brought him what we had and then we really got so nitpicky about the story and about our characters. Because at first it was Sheila worked at the grocery store and Ronnie Jones worked in the sugar mill. Well, no, at first it was just all a Sheila story, wasn't it? Oh, you're right. First it was all about Sheila. And then Ben was like, I feel like we need a second character. We have these three lockers that are adjoined in our studio, 13, 14, and 15. And we got them from like a, it wasn't a junk sale. It was just kind of like a... Somebody on Craigslist had them. Yeah. And the name under 13 is Ron. The name under 14 is Ted and the name under 15 is Dan. I'm literally looking at them right now. And we've always said that we wanted to write like a song for each of those men. Who were Ron, Ted and Dan? And where did they work where they had to have lockers with their names on them? And so we put Ron in this song. (laughs) Yeah, just kind of, I was like, well, this can be Ron's song. And so Ron came wandering in. But then, yeah, at first Ron was the sugar mill worker and and Sheila, Sheila worked, worked the grocery, the grocery and then I was like damn it I'm really sick of these like oh poor me women my man left me songs like that's so passe it makes so much more sense kind of in the modern world to make Ron the grocery store worker whose woman left him with a child because that's that happens all the freaking time and no one talks about that you know it's like somehow the woman is the sad left person you know and then Sheila is has been working in this sugar mill for like all these years and she keeps getting passed over for a promotion, which that just felt so much more honest and real. Interesting. I mean, they're fictional characters, but they're very real to me. I know exactly what these people look like. <laughs> <laughs> the place that's real to me in the song is I'm going to take these wheels, take me over the edge of that Rocky Mountain range. This is the Continental Divide. You know, we've all been through the Eisenhower Tunnel. Not everybody on this podcast listeners, but 
if you ever have, you don't really go over the edge because you're going to go through it. But there's plenty of places where you go up and over the Rocky Mountain Range. And it's really like always like this spectacular thing because there's something different on the other side of that. Oh, my God. Totally. And the view and the like. And and that's exactly what we were thinking of. We, We made a conscious decision to as we wrote the song to place it, to give it a place, which we did with a few of the songs, which kind of gives the album a place. Exactly, which was kind of cool. This was the first one that we really honed and like whittled down. It made the setting for the album, you know, like the Rocky Mountain Range. Okay, we are making an album about where we live. Yeah. Kind of, you know, or like at least that's the setting. I think that helped make even like a song like Over the Edge, which is a imagined story arc, but it did help it feel authentic and real to us for us to place it where we are. Yeah. And it's clearly, you know, sort of two phases of life, this midlife crisis of 37 and change. And then I think as we start to live older, the midlife crisis extends to 57. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of my age bracket, but uh, (laughs) that's why I'm doing a podcast now. The line I really love in this, it's such a setting thing. Pack up your knockoff American girl. <laughs> like that just says it all. Like we couldn't afford the American girl. Yep. We got the knockoff. Yep. Pack it up. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And we're out of here. I, that was like, I think at first it was just an American girl and we needed another couple syllables. And I was like, China, what if it's a knockoff American girl doll? I mean, if you're a parent in this day and age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. It's the Walmart version of American Girl doll. We totally have one of those, or we did. I think maybe she got put in the uh, in the giveaway pile recently. But um, exactly. Oh, good for you. (laughs) Another phase of parenting life. (laughs) But we've all been there as a parent with our kid, you know, staring at the American Girl window where there's this two hundred and fifty dollar (laughs) ripoff. Not. Oh, I, I didn't mean to say that. American Girl, I could, I'd be happy to be your sponsor on sponsor the show. Yes. <laughs> but, Cut that out, okay? <laughs> Kevin. Or, <who's, laughs> Kevin. Wyatt, it is a Wyatt, lifetime Wyatt. of memories if you do buy one of those $250 American Girl dolls. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, those same memories could be perhaps bought at a lower price point at a Walmart. <laughs> and Clearly they can. <laughs> what is it called? What is the Walmart version called? I forget. It's, I don't um, know. I'll look it up. <laughs> we'll get to the bottom of this. It, I know what it's called. It's called the knockoff American, American girl, girl doll. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think like, yeah, that's part of the whole realism that we're going for in this whole thing of like, we all live this. Like you just said, like every parent knows this and we're parents and we know it. And even though we didn't go through a sugar mill process or a grocery store process of we're really familiar with these feelings and like needing to leave a job or being told to leave a job Mm -hmm. and or being undervalued or, you know, and just being done with it. And exactly. And coming to the place where instead of allowing it to happen again and again, to be like, dang it, we're putting an end to this. And in some ways, I just love the metaphor I mean, I am an English major junkie, you know, like the metaphor of travel, the metaphor of the car, you know, being the literal vehicle and also the metaphorical vehicle to like, to help you move into a new place in your life and your soul and your whatever. 
honestly, right now I'm thinking of Huck Finn on the river, you know, and, and the raft and the river being this metaphor for America, you know, just when we wrote it, we weren't necessarily thinking about all of those sort of metaphorical tropes, but we didn't metabolize all of our (laughs) themes until the album was almost done. When we were putting together the album sequence, that's when we were like, Oh, look at all these things Mm -hmm. that are in this album. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That reality of parenthood and making decisions as an individual, but also as a parent and also as a like tired middle-aged person. Mm -hmm. Parenting takes energy. Yes. (laughs) For sure. On our bikes back in junior high Muscle cars would pass us by Wish I could have owned one then you know I would be turning head Take it up to the overlook Steam the windows till the cops show up Instead of feeling halfway dead I'd be the king with a foot of lead I wanna buy your Trans Am It's a 4 by 4 with welded doors Parked above the Georgetown Dam I Wanna buy your Trans Am It seems like it runs But it bakes in the sun It's just about as much as I can take Drive it down to some fancy street To find a classy place to eat Laugh at the valley climbing in Leave the radio turned up to ten Watch me drop the kids at school All the friends will think it's super cool The headmaster will shake his head But Dreamy owns it when he goes to bed I wanna buy your Trans Am It's a four by four with welded Parked above the Georgetown Dam Man, I really need that Trans Am It breaks most of the rules of the HOA Whose fees I don't care to pay Hey, so let's talk about cars. Cars is such a theme in music. I was watching Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, the documentary about Chuck Berry, and he talks about Maybelline, and he said, I wanted to write songs about cars and girls. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, there's the Beach Boys with Little Deuce Coop and Fun, Fun, Fun Till Your Daddy Takes the T-Bird Away. Springsteen's Cadillac Ranch come to mind, mm. or, or Little Red Corvette. And so you guys have tackled an American classic <laughs> Amen. In, in, in the song Trans Am. So I had to look up to see if there were other songs written about Trans Ams. And yours is very thematically different, but there is a Sammy Hagar Trans Am song, Highway Wonderland. There's a Thompson Square Trans Am song, and there's a Kesha 
Gold Trans Am song. And I don't know. Oh, I didn't one. hear the Kesha one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're all out there in the Trans Am genre. But I think yours is the one that Camaro should license for their advertising. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> this song I can totally relate to because I grew up on Long Island with a bunch of guys who were car junkies, Jimmy Schroeder and Richard Sapansky and and... <laughs> Bruce Northam, they would work on their cards and we used to take them out to Jones Beach at night and we'd run the drag to see if there were any cops there. And then they would open up the Trans Am. Nice. And Armin Galassi had the IROC Trans Am with the big oh, eagle yes. on the top of it. Yes. And he was the, you know, everyone was jealous of <laughs> Armin's car yeah. in the parking lot. And so this story is so personal to me. And I've never really shared a, a story like this in Backstory Song before. In, in this <laughs> I love it. I love this song, oh, if you don't know. Thank you. <laughs> so, so I had to do all this research about the Trans Am song. So tell me about this song for you, Seth. You wrote this one. Well, okay, just real quick. Have you seen pictures of the album cover yet? Of our album Of cover. our album cover. No, I haven't. Uh, I've just received the, the, the SoundCloud uh, to listen to. No, so I haven't seen your album art. So there's a car. It's not a Trans Am. We shot the album cover in a junkyard, and they had not one but two Trans Ams there, and I was losing my mind. <laughs> okay, is that the picture that's on the video that's on YouTube of the song, uh, the Trans Am song? Oh, what is the What is the picture? With you, it has you standing next to a Trans Am, uh, a junk. No, no, it's not. Okay, not. That. I can't wait to see it. Uh, no, it's not a Trans so, Am. It's not that's, a Trans Am. That's that's, that's the, the actual that we album bought. cover car, and that's a Dodge Shadow Turbo, which we can talk about that too if you want. But the Trans Am song, there was a car in this town called Georgetown, which is out I seventy west of Denver. Speaking of going over the Rocky Mountain Range, yeah, I mean it's on your way up to the Eisenhower Tunnel, and there's this little town called Georgetown, and it's an old mining town, old silver mining town. And you can see all the mines, like the old broken down mines, the, as you drive up. The saying is that the the streets of Georgetown are paved with silver because the miners, when they first started mining, they were in they were immigrants and they didn't know what silver looked like and that it would look gray and dirty. And so they were hauling silver out and using it to pave the streets <laughs> because they didn't realize. So this little town of Georgetown, it's now it's like a little tourist attraction, but there's this little tiny trailer park on the north side of the highway across the street from Georgetown. For years For and years. years. I mean, every time we play this song live, somebody says, I know that car because this yellow, it was actually a Camaro, not a Trans Am, but Camaro doesn't sing right. Um, <laughs> This Camaro that someone had put onto a uh, a blazer frame and drivetrain <laughs> just sat there, and it just sat there, and it drove me nuts. It was I so mean, cool. I loved this car, I mean, and it drove so me dumb. nuts. <laughs> it's like it's the hilarious this thing. It had probably thirty eight inch tires, and I was like, that is such a Colorado car. I mentioned it online a while back, and people were sending me like pictures they had taken from the highway of this car <laughs> links to a YouTube video of this car. And so I saw that and I just like sort of the idea of me going up and offering to buy the car made me laugh so much that I thought, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to write a song about this thing. It started out, I really, I'd written uh, some dreams and another song. They were pretty heavy and pretty like 
serious subject matter. And I was like, I think I need a little break. I think I need to just like enjoy songwriting. And so I wrote Trans Am first just to like, this is just a song that's going to make me laugh and it's going to be a throwaway and that's fine. I sort of didn't know where to go with it. And then I sort of rewrote it and got too serious and then presented them to Ben, both of them. And he said, yeah, you got, you got two different songs here. These are two different subject matters. And I think you should write the funny one. And so then we worked it out and I would like work on it and then run lyrics by Ben. And, and we'd be like, well, I think we need a funnier part here. Or, you know, I think, should I rhyme this word or should I make it sort of an anti-rhyme? And at first, I don't think we were on bikes in junior high. I was like running around. We spent way too much time thinking about like a song about a Trans Am. <laughs> um, like we really like fine-tooth combed the thing. And I kept being bewildered. At the end of it, you know, even though I'm like, I don't need to think about these words this much. It's about a Trans Am. <laughs> but now that it's done, I'm like, I'm so glad we thought about all those words so much. Yeah. It has a bittersweet sadness in Bruce Springsteen's documentary on Darkness on the Edge of Town. He talks about racing in the street as being the saddest song he ever wrote. He almost breaks down in tears. And you're like, I didn't really think of that as a sad song. And this song has those bittersweet, sad like elements to it in the sense that the guy's going to skip the braces for my kids <laughs> yeah. like a jerk in order to buy a Trans Am because he thinks it's going to transform his life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's such a fine line to dance too. of like, it's kind of a funny song. It's kind of sad. You're not sure if this guy's serious or not. Is he going to sell the minivan for a Trans Am? Is that going to happen? But then you're also kind of rooting for the guy, you know, you're like, he's paying an HOA he doesn't want to pay. He's living a life he didn't envision in high school or in middle school and you feel for him. But then you're also like, uh, don't, don't skip the braces. <laughs> That's a bad idea. Right. <laughs> right. His judgment is a little bit off. Yeah, right? yeah. And well, it's a little delusional. I mean, yeah, it's I think a little that's delusional. the thing about it. It does make me wonder, I, you know, I wrote the song, but I didn't think about his wife much. But now I'm like, his wife should step in here. <laughs> that's hilarious. Just because China steps into your life too much. Though, <laughs> I'm, the one, doesn't oh, mean you should. I'm the one trying to talk her into getting a muscle car. So No, you don't have to talk me into it. I just, uh, I want a muscle car. Actually, well, our neighbor is selling a, a Corvette. A really sweet Corvette. And I tell you what, I feel like a different person when I get to drive that car. <laughs> that is the midlife crisis oh, right shit. there. Yeah, That's like, for, That's forget on the back of Seth's motorcycle. <laughs> Seth, you're getting a Corvette <laughs> next. Yes, we are. Forget the Trans Am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when this record blows up, you're getting the Corvette. Getting the Corvette. You're mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> Give you everything I don't need Maybe you can feed it to the apple seed Give you all the babies that were taken from me Two of them are buried underneath that tree Yeah, two of them are buried underneath that tree Give me a light, I'll 
Well, the next song we wanted to talk about was Champagne. Oh, wow. Kind of a shifting yeah. gears. Yeah, huh? Well, this is the order you gave me. Uh, that is the order I gave them to you. And I, I didn't really think about that when I did that. Well, it, it's interesting. I think, you know, Seth got his super autobiographical song in the album, which was Some Dreams. And, and for me, Champagne, when I wrote it, you know, it came out seamless. It came out just like a whole thing altogether. I didn't really. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was one sitting and I might have tweaked a few words later, but it was one of those things. So I often compare songwriting to reaching behind a veil and pulling something into this realm from a different realm. Sometimes that veil is like gossamer and it's really like gauzy and eat and like not hard to push aside and you can kind of see the light of this thing that you're pulling into your own realm behind that gossamer. Sometimes it's like velvet and you kind of have to like, you know, it's there. It's a little scary. It's a little dark, but you have to like put your hand back there and you have to like pull it. Sometimes it's like fucking plywood and you have to like, you know, ouch, bang it down. Look at me. I'm like, I'm like banging my hand. I'm like, like, don't break a bone, please. <laughs> Not a game. But, um, At least I'm home this time. <laughs> but this one was definitely like cheesecloth. Like it was so right there. It was not, um, it just took the discipline of sitting down at the piano and being late for whatever I was about to go to in order to write this song, you know? Which is not an excuse for me being late all the time, I just want to say. Just that one time. <laughs> Okay, I'm just I'm just gonna be real real. You know, I I think I alluded to my super uber duper fundamental Christian upbringing. And you know, God is so totally masculine in that realm in that world, you know, and I am so tired of that. And so is my daughter, (laughs) our daughter. And I just really wanted to kind of dig into this idea of a higher power being female, and not in this like, anthropomorphization way but yes also you know obviously i say later in the in the song um, mama you've been standing tall you know you take it but really this is like in some ways this song is very autobiographical it's very female 
forward, I started right off just talking about my miscarriages, you know, I mean, not really. I mean, if you don't know me or if you, if you're not really clued into all of that, you probably don't hear that. But like, I've been taken out to coffee and asked about it, you know, because it's right there, you know, I mean, two of them are buried underneath that tree. And I, I, you know, that just, that line just happened. I wasn't thinking, it was just, I was just like writing. So I, I was thinking, but I wasn't in my prefrontal cortex. I was in my subconscious, you know, doing this whole thing. And I, th- in some ways, you know, people are like, oh, I'm so sorry about your miscarriages and whatever. And, and actually the first verse is not the hard verse for me to sing. The, the second verse is the hard verse for, for me to sing because I did have such a traumatic adolescence that I don't need to get into here, but it was just so hard. And I feel like I got it kind of miraculously made it through all of that. Like, I cannot believe that I made it through adolescence and, and some very major trauma with like, I'm, I'm definitely not unscathed and I definitely have been, you know, I've been in therapy ever since I was 22. So, I mean, it, it continues, but like, like I, like I somehow didn't train wreck my life early on. And that to me is a miracle. I feel like someone was watching over me, you know? And I, I think this song is the embodiment of my gratitude to God, but I didn't want God to be masculine. <laughs> so in this song, God is feminine. That it rings so true to me because I am a mother and I am so connected to that deep mother love and that feeling of having, you know, all your children in your nest and being like a, you know, like, you know, having your kids under your wings and that whole like metaphor. So I get all the way to the end of the song about, you know, mama, you've been standing tall, you take and you take and you take it all. And I have thought about how like, gosh, God gets a lot of blame for a lot of crap that is not hers to take, you know, like we, we sure do blame God for a lot of things, you know? you got all your children in your nest and you never, never, never rest. I mean, I still feel emotional, like thinking about that. Like there's this vigilant being that like, depending on your perspective and and sometimes our perspective, you know, is not this, but this being like watches over us. And, and there have been so many close calls for me and, and, and I have miraculously made it through and I just felt celebratory and I don't know, it just came out like, I'm going to find a way to drink champagne. All of these things that have tried to like take me down, you've not succeeded. So I'm going to pop a bottle. Nice. I think when God hears this record release, she's going to really smile. (laughs) (laughs) That one actually I wanted to say is, so I'm a finalist in the Kerrville Folk Festival, uh, new folk songwriting competition. And that song and Missouri Calling are the two songs that are the ones that I entered into the contest. And the contest actually the finals are next this coming weekend. Oh, wow. Now, so what, what's the contest again? So the Kerrville Folk Festival has been, it, it was founded by Peter Yarrow of Peter Paul and Mary. And he, well, actually, I don't know if he founded the festival, but he was the one who founded the songwriting competition that is part of that festival. And it is called the New Folk Songwriting Competition. I think it's like the Grassy Hill New Folk Songwriting Competition. Lots of words there. We're and both squinting, trying to remember. I mean, I did not realize this at the time that I entered these songs, but it is one of the most prestigious songwriting competitions in the world, actually. At least for like folk, you know. And I'm a finalist, which I was just 
shocked. Yeah. We, <laughs> this is great news. And, and the notification came and we were like, not paying attention, not paying attention. We were. And so a friend of ours who also is a finalist, she texted, she's like, China. in the middle of a movie. She's like, oh my gosh, Kerrville. And we were like, uh, are, are we just saying the names of towns? <laughs> What's going on? Like, <laughs> what are we talking about? And then I checked my email and I like was just gobsmacked, utterly flabbergasted. I just was like, oh my God. I I forgot that I had entered the competition. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. So this is, uh, I think the only song I've ever listened to about miscarriages, but it's more than just that. It's really about a woman trying to make it through life, through adolescence and young adulthood and motherhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I kind of balked at the idea that the woman who wrote our, what do you call it, our bio for this album, she originally called it a song about miscarriage. And I was like, ah, I'm not really comfortable with pigeonholing it there because for me, you're right. It's about this like whole experience of, it's just so autobiographical that it's not just about that, you know, it's about all of it. And as like sort of the observer of this song and the whole experience, we've dealt with miscarriage together and that is a group thing, but it's mm -hmm. also China, a really, really personal thing for China or for any mother going through a miscarriage. And I think that that part, well, in all of it, the whole story arc, the whole like miscarriage and motherhood and adolescence and all of that with women, these are things that should be talked about and should be sung about and should be mourned and celebrated and comforted and encouraged. And I think like to the degree that it's about miscarriage and adolescence and all of these things, like a lot of women go through similar experiences to what China has, not the same, but it's important to talk about this stuff and acknowledge it. And, and yeah, I think it's getting a lot more uh, sort of publicity now, it, like talking about this issue and sort of like women's bodies issues in general, just in the last like 10 years. But like when I was going through it, I didn't realize that I was like, part of like this, I mean, in some ways it's, it's like a sisterhood. It's like, you don't realize how many people have gone through this until you've, until you've gone through it yourself. And then you, well, at the time I was like sort of covertly talking about it, you know, and then, you know, all these people, like these hands raised, you know, like, Oh, I, me too. Me, you know, I've been through that too. And yeah, I just, I just kind of really love the idea of smashing the taboo about talking about and singing about these things, you know? Yeah, no, you smash the taboo about talking about miscarriages, but you also kind of, I think, talk about this universal thing of surviving adolescence from a female perspective. The interesting thing about adulthood is everybody survived adolescence. <laughs> and I don't think, You're totally I don't think anyone's adolescence, everybody does not look back on their adolescence as a fun time all the time. You, you know, right. You know, like everybody has stuff that they cringe about their adolescence. I, I don't care who you are, you know. No one's adolescence was easy. And so uh, you write about it here in a nice way. I like it a lot. Thanks. Oh, I'm tired in this body. Trouble got me down in the city. 
So Missouri Calling, this was also entered in the curve. It was. It was. It was. This might be my favorite one for us to play together. Yeah. We really enjoy singing this one together. And we've done it so many different ways. Like, we could do it just with a guitar. Mm-hmm. And a, Seth hates it when I play the tambourine, but I like it, so. <laughs> <laughs> the guitar, a guitar and a tambourine, or, you know, a guitar and a piano, or I suppose it can just be a piano song. I like it, but I mean, the weird thing about being a pianist in this genre, you know, of music is that I, you know, I'm like a lone wolf, you know, no one else really plays piano. Everybody plays a guitar, but I've been writing songs with guitar in mind ever since the very beginning. So I think what happened was we were sitting in the living room and you started just playing a, yeah, that's how it Mm -hmm. happened. You were playing a really pretty riff on the guitar, the one that we Mm -hmm. kept. We had just gotten back from, uh, vacation with some friends from Missouri. So I think that's what Missouri was on the mind. Oh, was it yeah. last year? It was yeah. after. Oh yeah. We have these really awesome Missouri friends, two separate families that we go on vacations with. They we went to the beach last year with them and they have kids the same age and they raise their kids kind of similarly. So we all kind of have like this it, it just works, you know? The Missouri beach of the ocean. Yeah, that that <laughs> no. beach. No, they drove out to the to the Outer Banks. We all went to the East Coast. <laughs> oh, the real beach. Real okay. Lake, of, Lake of the Ozarks. <laughs> we were in Corolla, North Carolina. Corolla, North Carolina. And uh, Seth was playing and I just started singing. I think what happened, well, obviously, you know, the voice memo gets turned on early on in this process. And I started, oh, I'm tired in this body. And then I I don't really remember writing this song. I just remember you were like, you need to just keep going there. And I, I think just it just kind of, it kind of, the main sort of, I guess, skeleton. Our songwriting methodology, usually one person sort of takes the helm for a while and then the other one sort of comes in and helps edit and we sort of mm-hmm. trade it back and forth. And I think this one like, well, this no, one came out pretty quick though. Yeah, it, yeah. And I think what happened was, this is what happened. We had like the bare bones of it. We had an understanding of like kind of where we wanted to go. And then we took it into the studio. Yeah. Because we did not have that pre-chorus or the post-chorus. Until we came into the studio. And I think I was just like randomly humming. And Ben was like, China, China, stop. What is that? Okay. I want you to like sing that. Sing that here. Let's, Let's record that. 
you know, we were like trying to like, it was kind of like putting like little pieces together, like, okay, let's arrange that. Ooh, that could, that would be really nice after the chorus. Okay. You know, like the song came out of our experience with this homeless shelter that we have done a lot of work with over the years. It's a women's homeless shelter. And um, both of us have made meals for the women at the shelter. And, and then we've spent the night with them individually. Sometimes Seth spends the night. Sometimes I do. Of course, this shelter is totally shut down right now because of the pandemic. And, you know, I've heard a lot of stories of homelessness. I've heard and every story is so unique to that individual. There's no one reason why people are homeless. And the other thing that I kind of have realized in all of that is that, I mean, gosh, we are all like one really bad accident or like there are just, there's just a large population that is one getting fired from their job or really bad accident or really bad health issue away from not being able to pay rent, you know? So I, I just really channeled, well, I kind of copied and pasted a couple of different stories that I've heard over the years into this song. And I was imagining like a woman coming from Missouri to Colorado to escape this bad situation in Missouri. And also, you know, she loves smoking weed and she, you know, Colorado is like the weed place to be. And, you know, you can make some money like if you're in the weed industry. And so let's just go to Denver. I'm just like kind of imagining like a 17 year old doing that, you know. And Denver kind of did go through like a a green gold rush when when everything was legalized, you know, and people were doing that. They were coming here and thought yeah. they were going to make a bunch of money. Yeah. Right. Start a cannabis farm. Exactly. Right. And then and then, you you know, you end up on the streets and but but here you are, you're here. And that is the story. Yeah. I love your harmonies on this. I love your harmonies throughout the album. <laughs> um, talk to me about how you guys do that. Yeah, I was actually just, as we're talking about this, I was thinking about like, I was like, oh, this song's a real duet. And we sing together on like all the songs, but for some reason, this, this one, one feels, feels like, like a duet, duet. Yeah. You know, but um, most of the harmony credit goes to China. When we're building harmonies, I'll be like, I'm lost. We have little and sessions and I just like, I'm it. like, I like turn into choir director China. I just know music. And so I know like, okay, if I'm singing the third, then he'd sound really good on the one or the five or, you know, so I can build stacks pretty easily, you know, because I know exactly where I am. Well, I also have perfect pitch. So it's like easy for me to know exactly where we're at and like who needs to do what. And, and Seth is so good. I mean, I know sometimes I can be a real pain in the ass to work with. So Seth is so good at dealing with Because <laughs> I can, you know, I'm classically trained. I could be pretty perfectionistic, but He's so good at like, once you learn it, you got it. Like you don't forget it. You have your harmony part. It um, makes it really hard though when we're like, oh, let's take this whole song down a full step. And then I'm like, what? I have to learn the harmony again. And I'm like, well, it's the same thing. It's just, you know, just transpose it. But, you know, it, I, different people have different ways of interacting with, you know, that kind of sound. Sound, yes. exactly, exactly. So yeah, so that's how, I mean, usually Seth like will find a harmony and then I'll help him carry it through the whole phrase or, or modify it because China's really great at hearing what's gonna be there so like when we were doing vocals China was already thinking about strings in some of the songs so then she's saying okay don't sing that note because the viola is going to be pushing against that note I wanted to talk about that Seth because I marveled at the string arrangements throughout this album and not every song has them uh from Craig. No, uh, seven, seven, seven of the songs. Seven of the 11. 
okay. And I was like, who arranged them? At first I was, because I knew you played keys and I knew you, Seth, were guitarists. And I was like, well, is this a synthesizer that she wrote? Like, is playing? And I was like, no, no, those are strings. They're real, like, yes. Where did they come from and who brought them to this album? Oh, Doug, I, this I, is my favorite. I want to say right now how proud I am oh. of China's string work on this and then I'll let her take over, but I'm just super duper proud <laughs> of what she accomplished with the strings. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I wrote the arrangements, except for for Champagne, our uh, good friend, Brittany, who is the first violinist in the quartet. She wrote Champagne, which is funny. I think Champagne was so, it was almost too close to me. I, I, I wanted to hand it off to someone else because I felt almost too like precious about it. So I gave that to her and she did a beautiful job arranging that string arrangement. But all the others, I arranged them. I wrote them in Sibelius. I mean, I also have studied composition. So I I know my way around a Sibelius uh, workstation. And that was so freaking fun. It was one of my favorite things I've ever done. At the end of the day, if I were to just like, you know, make albums and then also write string arrangements for other people, I would be a happy, happy woman. Well, that leads to one of my standard questions is if you could pick any song that you've written and pick the quote unquote voice or the band to play that song, what song would you ask them to play and what voice or band would you want to record and sing that song? That's such a challenging question in a way. I Okay, I, I have an answer. I think I would love Joni Mitchell to sing my song, uh, Scent of Honeysuckle, from our first uh, EP, or second EP. <laughs> Joni Mitchell, man, I have many, many, a, many a vinyl record on a rainy day have I spun of Joni's. <laughs> yeah, that's good rainy day. Mm -hmm. Rainy day vinyl. I think, I mean, I kind of have two answers to that. It would be so amazing and, and gratifying. When our last album came out, this guy who has a radio show, when he introduced one of our songs, he said that he could envision Tom Waits covering the great our Tom song. Waits. The great, yeah, he's Scottish. He's Scottish. He's Tom Waits. And that I was like, uh, that would blow my mind. There's an aspect of that. But also I think, and this is going to be kind of weird, but I feel like the voices right now that are most potent to me are coming out of hip hop. If someone in hip hop sampled one of our songs, I would be like, oh, apparently we're now saying something really important. You know, that would feel like I'm speaking into, into something broader than me. Run the Jewels, sample the ooze yeah. from Missouri Calling. If Run the Jewels we were go. like, okay, this, this song is part of our story arc, that would feel like I'm singing in the moment. And that's a thing, like a challenge that I'm setting out for myself for my next songwriting endeavor is to try to make something. And I'm not saying I'm going to try to make hip hop, but I want something to have that urgent voice, like the urgency that, that you get with a genre that is allowed, allowed, I use the term allowed, but a genre that talks about the very moment. And I think I can learn from that and talk about the very moment. So if someone is talking about something that is right now and takes my song and uses it or borrows from it, I would feel like I was accomplishing my sort of next songwriting goal. 
Well, China and Seth, this has truly been a pleasure. I have to thank you. This has been an honor and a thrill for me to share your story about All Right, All Right and your new album, Crucible, which is coming out this October. And I thank you. I have to thank DJ Wyatt Schmidt. And you can listen to his music out there on the internet without him in the sound booth here. We would be lost. And I also have to thank Mary Caroline MC Owens, my new social media director for lifting our social media presence. Remember, songwriters get paid when you listen to their songs. And one way to do that is if you like this episode, share this episode. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and share this episode. If you like this episode or like these musicians, listen to our Spotify playlists and they will get paid. Not a lot, but they'll get something and we're trying to keep them fed through this (laughs) terrible, terrible COVID pandemic that we're all enduring so we can get them back out performing in our clubs and go see them in a uh, on tour in a town yes near yeah. you yes wait. we cannot wait <laughs> we're we're really really grateful and honored too so thank you so much for having us thank you so much Don.